0: Listen up, dear listeners in the UK. There's a brand new guitar show this year, the Brighton Guitar Show. It's a one-day show happening on the 15th of July at the Brighton Racecourse, and it's going to be great. We'll be there along with loads of your favourite boutique and major brands like Two Notes Audio Engineering, Chapman Guitars, Fidelity Guitars, Thorby Effects, Pedal Patch, Bright Onion Pedals, Ranger Effects, NRG Effects, Great Eastern Effects, Iverson Guitars, Kurt Mangan Strings, Baybury, 8 and 11 audios and a circuitry and loads and loads more. What more excuse do you need? to come to sunny brighton the birthplace of guitar nerds then a guitar show full of guitars pedals effects and accessories come say hi hang out have a beer and check out all the cool gear with matt jd and i you might even see a few of the og guitar nerds hosts knocking about for tickets visit brightonguitarshow.co.uk or check them out on social media with brighton guitar show see you there Here at Guitar Nerds, we're big fans of Isotope software and their impressive range of plugins. And you, dear listener, get 10% off all Isotope plugins at isotope.com with discount code NERDS10. Every Guitar Nerds podcast for well over 5 of its 10 years has been edited, polished and repaired using Isotope's wonderful range of tools. From their Nectar Suite to EQ, Compress and Lightly Add Reverb to give the impression that Matt and I are in the same room. To the RX Repair Suite to deal with pops, clicks and background noise in fact every sound sample that you hear on our podcast is mastered using Isotope's ozone mastering suite and i can even compare audio eq and levels to other similar released material using Isotope's tonal recall it's all very good and believe it or not there are a bunch of free plugins that you can try a vinyl simulator for added character the ozone imager for help visualizing your stereo mix and a vocal doubler for added richness and depth to your vocals pretty neat check it all out at isotope.com so Dan I um, I finally I finally got round on Netflix to watching that documentary on clocks the other day it was about time (laughs) hello dear listener hello and welcome to another episode of the guitar nerds podcast i am your host joe branton joined this week by dan gooday dan hello welcome to the podcast thanks for joining me
1: Hello, Joe. Yeah, nice to thank you for having me, and yeah, nice to join you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, uh,
0: Dan, Dan hasn't done an episode of Guitar as before, dear listener. This is your uh, this is your maiden voyage with us. But we have we you know we've actually known each other and been friends for for quite a few years now. Dan is dear listener. The actually, what 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 is your official title at Ashdown these days?
1: Uh, official title is uh, managing director of Ashdown, um but for all intents and purposes um yeah we're a family business so um titles are are,
0: are one thing to one and another to another I see. I see. Okay. Well, yes. So Dan Dan basically heads up and runs Ashdown Engineering, dear listener, but he is also um, a verified guitar nerd. So I thought uh, what an excellent fit to have on the podcast this week whilst uh, Matt is off gallivanting round Europe. Uh, with work, so uh, this week, kind of, I you know, I, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Nam, talking about all the new products that have come out. It was a little bit muted, missing some of the 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 big hitters, but there were a few exciting products that have come out. And of course, Dan, you actually got to go to NAM, so you uh, got to see some of the cool things. Were there? You actually, you you had a there was an Ashdown booth at NAM this year that I saw lots of videos of you like having to go to IKEA at some ridiculous time of the morning uh, to get things to build a stand.
1: Yeah, I mean, as with NAM, it's always a a fun last-minute dash, and there's always something that doesn't turn up or something that doesn't go to plan that you end up just having to deal with. As you get there, and some of the expenses incurred at Nam are just daft when you look <laughs> at it. I mean, we we wanted to rent uh, uh, two sofas and a coffee table, right, for for three days at Nam, right? Yeah, three and a half thousand dollars. The wonderful people at Freeman <gasps> um, wanted to charge us for the rental of that. What, is, that a, is that the official company that rent that, things
0: for Nam? Is
1: it? Yeah, that's the, the, the people with the monopoly because um, it, it's it's all union-based and everything that goes with it. So we have to use their suppliers if we want to rent stuff. However, there is an IKEA down the road in Costa Mesa. Um, IKEA, there are other flat-pack furniture providers, but we do tend to favour IKEA. Um, <laughs> and for $800, dollars we got two sofas, the coffee table and uh, extension leads and various other bits. And sadly uh we it was donated at the end of the show to a good cause
0: um, oh that's good i saw your dad post a picture being like oh i hope someone picks some of this stuff up <laughs> yeah have i donated uh, um... <laughs> yeah um, yeah that's always i wonder how much stuff how i wonder how many people do that sort of thing at Nam because you know you can't be the only people who've worked out there's an ikea around the corner
1: no, uh, we've done. Uh, we've built whole booths out of IKEA furniture before, from giant structures using this massive Calax system. Um, well, we, we've yeah, we've shipped in. We've probably built around about forty to fifty of these Calax units at Nam and left them there.
0: Um, I think I've Kallax, uh, that, that, that unit type must keep, uh, you know, sorry, dear listener, to make it the furniture podcast, but <laughs> Kallax by Ikea must keep that, that company in business because… It's
1: the perfect size for everything. I mean, those squares that, that Kallax fits, fits turntables, and it just so happens to fit most of our um, headphones, products, and all sorts in between. Um, so, it's a very much yeah. a, a, a great… Um <laughs> piece of furniture. Um,
0: there was that, there's that, and we're going to talk about sort of Ashdown Labs and some of the weirder things that you've been involved yeah. in, like prototyping type later in the podcast, but there is at Ashdown HQ, dear listener, there's some sort of Ashdown like sub that fits yeah. perfectly into uh uh into one of those calax boxes it's designed in mind
1: actually at the time (laughs) it was the height of the feet and i'm looking at it now across the room and it does fit perfectly snug within that cube um um and yeah we some of the stuff that we've designed over the years and some of the stuff that we've been involved in is you've got to laugh a little bit but um Um, in the same instance, it's also what keeps us driving forward in terms of innovation and ideas, and it's also something that inspires me. Really, gear's always been a massive part of my sure. life growing up in this industry. Um, yeah,
0: well, yeah, absolutely. I, I bet well, this is the thing, you know, because Ashdown is is such a, a family-run business because it's because your entire life and your dad's entire life has has been being in this industry and kind of trying to make new things that, you know, make the next thing for bass players or, you know, guitarists, anyone, musicians in general. Um, it, yeah, it's something that you're heavy. I mean, how many shows do you reckon you've done over the years? Because you must have been doing them since you were a kid. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> my
1: first Frankfurt show, I think, was I, I was about nine years old. Um, um, so, yeah, subsequently, I, I don't know, this was in my official capacity, My would have been my 20th Nam show. Um. So, um, but with that in mind, it's sort of twenty years of trade shows there used to be two to three a year—and then including Music China and others that we ended up doing. So, yeah, yeah, a lot. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> upwards of seventy odd, if not a hundred plus, sort of international trade shows around the world. Um, yeah, that, that would is definitely awful be lot. a figure yeah. that. Do you yeah. still
0: like them? Do you still like them? Or have you got, have you got very bored of, uh, of trade shows by this point?
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: There's a love-hate relationship. I I, I couldn't imagine not doing them. Hey. Um. But in the same instance, if there was an opportunity um, not to do it in such the way that we've broken our backs over it. Like this NAN was perfect. It right. was just me and dad flew out and set up a booth within a couple of hours. And it, it was an easy breakdown. Everything was there waiting. But some years, I mean, we've taken out sort of 24 410s, 24 412s, drove in a London double-decker bus one year. I actually several that. years. Um, I that, that. I had to drive in before decabals. anyone else in the convention centre. <laughs> yeah. We had to drain the fuel on it and then get it approved by the fire marshals. Um, have it on axle stands. Um, you, you end up getting a good relationship with the foreman on the floors at the show. So we still know the same foreman that I've known for 20 plus years. He still looks after that haul. Um, oh, yeah. it was great seeing him at the show and again shows are just great for connecting with people that you wouldn't necessarily get the opportunity to spend any time with so uh, one thing that we always asked is is it worth it is it is it really worth the money and uh, we saw 32 customers from around the world whilst we were there over three days um over 60 odd people and you start adding up how much that it cost to visit those individually yeah um sure. it's it's still a a good viable option and as much as the virtual world has achieved x for for trade shows i still think it's important to to press the flesh and see people and kind of gauge that that whole vibe because it is our industry we are an industry based on hype um whether you believe it or not is it's it's your choice um (laughs) yeah that's my entire uh, job (laughs) um, yeah absolutely um (laughs) Uh, and yeah, no, definitely worth it. Um, it's a How, do it I, it's, How do you well, think it compared? How do you think that
0: this NAM compared to like other NAMS in the past?
1: Well, someone said to me on whenever it was the the Friday of the show, just talking, said it feels like twenty years ago. And I was sat there thinking, I can't remember. Oh no, no, I was here twenty years ago. Yeah, um, actually, it does. It didn't have quite the. Um, it didn't have quite the expense and the over. Uh, exaggeration that it became about sort of five, six years ago where everyone was just going – all out with demonstrators with well, it was it, it
0: had become over the last few years it, it kind of changed it wasn't really about the these like, a good product being launched there it was about getting a uh, a youtuber with a couple of million followers to play a 30 string guitar like it was yeah. about gimmick releases it really it changed to sort of where the focus was you know
1: I, I think it's all for the better to be honest because a lot of that noise that it's created by others not just actual physical noise because it does get deafening but actual just the 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 noise from from others at the show um for us as a sort of a a mid-sized brand it it enabled us the time with with people we wouldn't have necessarily had otherwise Um, so uh filtering out that noise and not making it a big showboating experience and it I get it, it's all about um being seen. Um but this day and age I think it's still very important to be there, but in a cost effective sure. manner, that we're not going back thinking, Oh, I've just spent our first quarter's budget on, on Nam. Well um, that is it. That's that was the biggest thing about
0: and you know, dear listener, I'm aware that Matt and I have talked about, you know, this this a bunch and, and whether or not Nam's worth it now. The amount of money that it that it costs brands to, to head out there can be cripplingly expensive so i kind of i'd like that the shoe's on the other foot now that brands don't feel that they have to do it but there is still advantage like it's interesting hearing what you've got to say about it because
1: yeah i mean it's you what know. you choose to do with it because you can still spend the money you can still have the the big flash booth i mean one of the most impressive structures this year was the new gsp booth at right. the show and it was great to see the industry kind of still <laughs> spending that sort of money um <laughs> well i mean I,
0: neural dsp must have a lot of money. i mean they they only have to make a product once and then they yeah. can sell it over that's the benefit of plugins you know oh, just, d- d- uh, d-
1: a digital world that um <laughs> uh, if we didn't have to have a physical product <laughs> if we didn't have to manufacture stuff that'd be wonderful but um we do and w- without doing that uh, it's it's difficult but what did the
0: DSP have there then, other than the other uh, than the pedal, just the pedal board?
1: Yeah, I think so. Just the, I didn't really spend much time, to be honest, right. but they had a, a big screen, a little demo area. Um, cool. uh, John and Rabir were there um, oh, playing, cool. uh, which was great. I think they were the, one of the only companies to have proper demonstrators on the booth. It was all very headphone-orientated, um, oh. as you can imagine. Yeah, sure. Um, but then again... It, yeah, it was, it was an odd show. A lot of mm-hmm. weird little guitar makers popping up. Um, a friend of mine uh, that does some great instruments, um, and uh, for the life of me, I've forgotten his name. <laughs> well, um, that's but his the benefit son, of... Avi. Sorry, sorry. Um, Avi. Right. Um, and he makes guitars um, in California. And we actually met him at um, Mannheim, Uh, oh
0: at uh, Guitar Summit
1: was it um,
0: was it
1: Shabbat it was Shabbat
0: there you go how about that (laughs) yeah Um,
1: and he had a great show and sold out most of the instruments that were on the booth and then catching up with the lovely Ken Haas from Reverend Guitars and some of the instruments that he's coming out with are phenomenal we had a little Ashdown um, on on his booth so it was nice chatting with him Um, and it's nice seeing sort of I don't know. You still got the feedback from people it being their first Nam and uh-huh. how excited they were still to be there. And I was just thinking, well, um, I'm sorry. I, I just kept apologising for them being their first Nam was this year because <laughs> the size of the corridors, the hall, it was half the show it, it, it has been. Oh, um, had they shrunk it down? Had yeah, they like there's blocked no off? basement areas. blocked oh. off basement. Uh, blocked off half of Hall C moved the drums in with Hall C, Hall D became kind of – there was a big um, uh, Chinese factory um, presence at the show with um, sort of a a Chinese manufacturing marquee that gets set up for them so they have an opportunity to showcase their goods, um, which is normally reserved for the basement at NAMM. Yeah, of course, yeah. And that's always been my favourite place at NAMM. And it's always
0: you see such weird stuff. That's amazing.
1: Uh, from I remember seeing the little connect MIDI boxes that were being done at the time, and it was all touch sensitive um, MIDI controllers and various other bits, and it was it, it, It's all started to come to the forefront and into fruition, but that was sort of six, seven years ago. Right. I remember seeing these weird tin can bases as well down there <laughs> at one point that now are all over. Sort of urban outfitters across America and other retail chains as such just doing kind of the, the toy instrument market um, and it's just great to see um, but that was lacking at the show uh, any sense of sort of the weirder stuff, the more outlandish yeah. stuff. Um, there was the. It was nice to see the guys from Dingwall because I still think they make some incredible bases. Um, I'm not too yeah, sure yeah, about we, the we, frets, we, but um, yeah, uh, they, they work with that instrument. Um, I, I thought I'd never be able to play one of these, and then sat down with a four string for a little while, thinking, actually "You know what? This this is quite nice." Um, they are uh, yeah. cool.
0: they, they're very well built i mean they're absolutely the opposite of everything that i like in a in a base but, <laughs> but i i really like them for kind of uh for innovation you know sort of making a fan fret base it's still it's they are very modern but they're kind of keeping some traditional edge like a lot of them have scratch plates still those big yeah. angled humbuckers they're kind of cool like they're, yeah. they're quirky cool they
1: are and uh sheldon's doing a great job with that and um they're shipping and he's making a lot of bases and they are yeah. still handmade. Um-
0: what was the, uh, what was the, uh, what was the brands that uh, Lodestone, the oh. original, the original Ashdown base back yeah, in the day? Because right. this is, this is a thing that's interesting. Dear listener, Dan ends up, and, and I assume it's, it's you and, you know, we'll obviously, we'll talk about Dave Green yeah. and, and his eccentricities as well. But I assume <laughs> it's you who always heads up kind of the Ashdown Lab stuff that, that tends to be very progressive like the products that come out of ashdown labs they tend to be the there's weirder things left field things you know if the if the ashdown abm is is an absolute sort of cornerstone of what a rock and roll bass head is there'll be weird oddities that will come out like there was that programmable
1: head yes yeah, the superfly um that was the the first one in fact i've got one sat behind me at the moment uh, on the floor um that, that was kind of inspired I, my old man's always been um, one to to run with an idea. Um, right. Some might say get carried away. Uh, I'm for the opinion that it's always – Dad listens an awful lot to what his friends have to say, and I think a lot of what we've built upon as a company is we've always taken other people's opinions Um and we've taken them to heart a lot of the time. We've taken them to production a lot of the time. Um, and it's nice to just experiment. So a lot of that's fed by my dad's passion for, 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 for evolving with the times and listening to the, what the artist has to say. And same with, with myself. And then some opportunities like touching back onto the Lodestone Guitar Project. Um, that was actually a collaboration at the time with, our marketing company, a company called the bridge based out of Milton Keynes, um, right. a guy called Jeff Howarth and, um, uh, a guy called Andy and, um, they helped with that. They were involved in the initial idea and the idea it was just BMW just launched their three series, um, re- revamped and they had some cool angles and lines and some really cool colors. Um, and we went down that route of looking at that aesthetic and then, again, not wanting to do a guitar that was just another guitar. Um, we decided to look at the material aspect of things um, and started looking at ceramics for saddles and nuts, um, which has its benefits uh, more so for saddles than it does for nuts. Nuts, you need a little bit more lubrication um, than it's available between uh, <laughs> a string and a and a piece right. of stone um, <laughs> sure. uh, at one point we were getting sparks off of nuts because of the way that the tension was at the top so right. um and then again the weird and wonderful headstock that was inspired by my father's time at uh, his previous entity which was trace Elliot back in the day um they they did a base called the t-base
0: oh the trace base yeah yeah
1: which was ergonomically designed to um enable the bass player to tune at a more comfortable position, but also creating a better tension at the nuts.
0: I didn't realize that the t bass also had the the weird yeah. angle on the So what Dan's talking about dear listener is if you think about on like a Fender P-bass how you've got to reach over or you know a, a guitar as well a strap because the Lodestones existed as guitars as well as as yeah. well as basses but if you you know if if you have to lift your hand over the top to tune then these were at a slightly recessed angle so angled slightly back um, still on the top of the headstock. I don't mean angled back like a uh, like a Firebird, but you know, slightly angled back so that it was a comfortable location for you to get. And it and what did it do? Just extend
1: the the tension, the, the, the the tension yeah. at the nut. Yeah, so it just in, increased that tension, proved better stability within tuning, and then got involved with um, carbon truss rods and reinforcement in that and in the design of that. We worked with a great factory over in Czech Republic called NRE, um, a guy called Peter there and his wife, um, wonderful factory. They build a lot for um, NS design products and Spectre oh, products. That oh, I was going to say, there. I bet
0: if it's the Czech Republic and it's a factory, I bet they do a load of Spectre,
1: yeah. A, a phenomenal factory, great access to some incredible woods and materials. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, that was back in 2007, I think we right. launched them. Right. Um, and we'd just done a huge campaign at the time with the wonderful people at sound control who had committed to the line in a big way and it was all being a big report. and then literally we landed the instruments delivered them to the stores and then 3 days later we get a phone call from sound control saying um yeah we've we we're, we're closing ah uh, um uh, at which point i think the the look around the office was um yeah, for want of a better word, but um, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on the podcast. But you can, by all uh, means. Um, shit um, <laughs> was was the word that went down. Um, we all looked at each other. Uh, luckily, at the time, we had the retention of title in place, and they hadn't paid for the goods. So there's our sales manager, long-term Ashdown family member, Chris Bates, driving around the UK in a van, picking up guitars and anything oh. that we could get out of the stores. Um, And obviously with that and what happened when they went into liquidation, it was a difficult time for for us um, with Lodestone. And it kind of, all the effort and the attention had been put into sound control at the time. Yeah. They had their own magazine. They had their own um, online presence-ish. It wasn't as... I mean, Facebook was just starting. Um, There wasn't a social media as such. No, it it probably wasn't
0: the cornerstone of of promotion as it is today.
1: No, um, everything had been reviewed by guitarist magazine, Total Guitar. They'd all won choice awards and all our advertising and efforts had gone into that, Um, which unfortunately, when that went under, it kind of kiboshed the entire project and everything was shelved until a later date. Right, right. You've kept one
0: for yourself. That's on the rack in uh, in yeah. Ashdown HQ.
1: There's two. You... There's a jazz and, and a P that mm. I've kept. Um, uh, uh, and there was a guitar at one point, but during lockdown that got sold. As did everything, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah,
0: you kept you kept like a, an Olympic white one with the Talk Garden. It's it's an EMG Precision pickup in it. It is. is. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, it was an interesting choice, but we were doing quite a lot of work at the time with EMG. Mm. Um, and also we'd shared some uh, time a, a, a couple of factories far east with them at the time right. um, uh, so the EMG relationship was quite strong so we put those in and it sounds incredible it's oh, a great yeah. bass and uh, again with the with the jazzes we opted for an EMG um, jazz option but they were all active um, and honestly it could sound like a piano or it could sound like a a uh, a a wonderfully muted precision. It was a great instrument and one that for me the necks were based on a sixty two jazz bass that just played like butter and then the the, the P bass was based on a seventy seventy one P that I acquired from a guitar centre actually on Hollywood Boulevard. I oh, know Sunset Boulevard, um in Hollywood and it was um my first proper seventies P bass that I bought from from there back in 2002 2003 um subsequently sold it um one of the worst decisions i've ever made if you ever find a p bass that works keep it (laughs) Um, yeah yeah you
0: you end up buying and selling an awful lot of stuff i remember you had um a pink paisley telecaster that used to get around
1: as well yeah recently got rid of that sorry um recently got rid of that actually because that was a great instrument but that was a 2002 one of the first well 2000 ish First Fender Japan, when they did the reissues of the Telecasters, the Paisley ones, um, I'd always had a desire for a Telecaster and it was a. It ended up being a gift from Fender Japan at the time. Um, but wonderful instrument, incredible guitar. I always fell in love with the Telecaster ever since falling in love with Johnny Greenwood from a very young age. Um, um, and then Colin subsequently with the P bass more so. Um, but yeah... Um, the, yeah, instruments. It's a fun world to get involved in. Um, yeah, because Lodestone,
0: of course. I guess Lodestone started the whole thing. Now you're doing the Ashdown bases. I mean, I've seen like loads of weird, random Lodestones about on the second hand market. Like I saw, uh, I saw one today with a pair of those Sims uh, pickups. Do you know the ones like the massive? Yeah, yeah. humbuckers? Yeah, Retrofitted well, Sims you, ones. Yeah, and you, they're so good. Dear listener, if you've... I mean, I think these are... Very, they're expensive. They're like £200 per pickup, and you'd, you'd put two in. So it's, you know, it's a big expense. £400 it's a big pounds on a pair of pickups. But... But um, they have the abilities – you've got a little switch and there's a little LED that flashes three different light colors and you can either split it like you would a a precision bass, you can run a single bar like a jazz bass or you can run both bars like a humbucker. So you've got three available sounds off of both pickup in any combination. They're very good. But did you ever do stuff with Sims or is that something someone's – Oh, so that wasn't a retrofit. That was actually how it came.
1: Yeah, well, I think it might have been a retrofit because we did... Actually, Martin was involved in the first prototyping of the lodestone instruments originally. Right. Uh, so Martin built all of our original lodestones that we launched at NAM back in... Was, I'm going to say 2006. It was around right. then, 2005, 2006. Um, it might have been later, but I'm pretty sure it was about that time. Right. Um, yeah, dates. I can't quite put a finger <laughs> on it. Um, I have to look at some old photos. But... Um, yeah, Martin was involved in the original sort of setup and, and the tooling of those instruments before we moved manufacturing over to the Czech Republic. Um, we also, at the time I worked with a guitar tech friend of mine, um, a guy called Guy Cowan, um, who was working with the band Razorlight at the time. Right. Um, as well as um, he teched for Grant Nichols of Feeder and a few others, and just genuinely a lovely bloke that I got along really well with so I actually ended up t- taking him out to the factory in in near Prague um, and going spending a week in production with them going through everything uh, making sure the setups were right making sure that everything would would function in the way it should and the instruments could intonate prior to leaving and it, it, it was a, a real insight into of how it needs to be done for guitar manufacturing and Subsequently, with the stuff that we've we'll been working with Dan Lakin of Lakeland Bases, since Dan sold Lakeland to um, the current owners of Lakeland Bases, Dan um, wanted to get back involved in the industry and um, we, we welcomed him with open arms. So he's doing uh, his own custom shop
0: now, is right? He does a D Lakin custom builds or. Y- y-
1: <laughs> sort of. <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> Um, check out D Lake in bases uh, for more information on that because I'm yeah. still not a hundred percent sure of of his position with those. Um, but drop down an email, um, tell him Dan from Ashdown said hello. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I mean it was a great it was a great fit, wasn't it? Because Leighton bases are very cool. They're yeah. used by you know a, a bunch of super cool players, Giza Butler
1: my favourite
0: one or you know they're they're Lakeland players and so it was great especially with Dan leaving that brand it was a cool thing to do to get them on board but a totally different thing from Lodestone
1: yeah Um, completely I mean the thing with Lodestone it was an opportunity at the right time Um, people were a bit more um, forthcoming to To to, to more modern shapes back then, right? Um, Is that what you
0: think? You think it's more? It was a trend, trend based. Now everyone's into the. It feels that way.
1: Um, Everything went traditional in terms of backline, if if there is a backline, uh, which is a subject that we'll get onto a little bit later. But (laughs) um, it's it's that trend and changes. If something I don't know familiar shapes, it was always a difficult thing with the lodestone guitars. I mean, I spent a lot of time working with um Simon and James from Biffy on a Lodestone guitar at the time. Yeah. Um on the release of Puzzle. So yeah, that must have been about 2007.
0: My goodness. It was around Puzzles that you were doing this. Yeah. It's, it's...
1: Um um so yeah, um that was the first sort of time when we started working with guitarists and we'd built Simon one that was kind of uh, Simon's always been a strap man as you know. Um, but then trying to get him to use the, 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 the super strap vibe with the humbucker at the bottom to give him that saturation because a lot of the album had been recorded with the Les Paul. Right. Um, so it was trying to, I'm just bringing back loads of memories now, but I remember a time we were up at Fat Sam's up, um, up the road and, um, they were doing a show and we doing a sound check with the low guitar and it just felt right, but there was this fizz to it. But with Simon's tone, with the metal zone, uh, the Marshall at the time and everything else that went with that, the PV combo and a few other bits that were in that rig, it just didn't Bit right that right. you can beat the strat for simon's live sound with the way it was set
0: up but it's such a complicated setup so simon he setup. getting that sort of sound out of a single coil loaded Stratcaster caster just requires such a specific pedal board and specific amp setup that you can you'd almost you could get that tone with a humbucking guitar you'd ha- if anything have an easier backline setup but if you're going to try and use his weird hodgepodge of transistor and valve amplifiers and a metal zone
1: Yeah, it's a- yeah it's a difficult thing to try and achieve and simon's never going to be able to play les paul live it wasn't right. the, the, the strats always been comfortable right um and he's quite an energetic performer um yeah. to say the least one of the the best enigmatic front men that i think um scotland's ever produced um let alone the uk in many instances so it's yeah. um uh getting that feedback there early on and then james kind of would never be seen with one of the bases at the time because it was a little bit left field in terms of the angular design right and everything right. else that went with it um was he working
0: with fender by that point because he yeah. had a
1: squire signature jazz came out probably
0: shortly after puzzles i reckon
1: it was um um Neil from Fender, and it was actually Hodder, who used to be our artist relations guy for a little while back in the day, um, did the bass and the guitar with James and Simon from Biffy Clyro. Um, And it was around that time, actually, not that long after, I think probably 2008, 2009, that came out. Um, And yeah, um, it was an opportunity, but it was also kind of us to get that feedback early on on what was gonna work and what wasn't gonna work for us as a brand delving into instruments um it was interesting and then the dan lakin came about um and then working with james on the saint base for for the last run that we're working on at the moment which are a more affordable range of instruments working with a an alternative factory based in china um but people are very sort of pessimistic and scared about working with Factories um, from the Far East. Sure, but, I mean, um, I
0: think that's you know that's certainly changing. I think China have proved themselves to be a fantastic. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the thing that the, the whole industry has benefited from this. But Fender introducing class, the Classic Vibe series, which was part yeah. of actually the Simon new and the James Johnson bases were kind of part of them making managing to make such high quality instruments out of China. You know, like Matt, Matt and me have said on the podcast for years, I think loads of us have said on the podcast for years, if back when it was the Mexican standard, whatever, you know, strap, peer yeah. base, anything, if you had a choice of that or a square Classic vibe, get the Classic vibe because the bang for Buck was incredible. Yep. Um, but I think that's sort of moved the goalposts, changed how people think about China. So it's it's obvious, yeah. you know, I, I've mentioned dear listener on the podcast before about these, you know, the prototyping these new ash down bases out of China. I, yeah. I mean.
1: I've been blown away at the quality and yeah. the, the, the the standard at which they're able to kind of maintain production. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued about but this particular factory do have a, a another rather large customer that they work with um, that have a proven track record for affordability, a a very sort of very good product, Um, especially opting for the roasted um, maple boards and necks on that front. They've done it phenomenally. Um, uh, There's a few uh, specification changes that we're going to need to make on a few of the instruments as I think, Um, as we've discussed and and others, but it's, 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 yeah, very impressive to see what they've done with them and, and yeah, moving that forward. I think the market's still very susceptible to an affordable, um, product that, that's sort of, it's been road tested. And as I was getting to it's, um, we sent James out with, with one of the Chinese bases for the arena tour that Biffy Clara did towards the end of last year. Yeah. Um. I didn't tell James where it was made. I didn't tell James how much it would cost. He fell in love with the bass at first sight and agreed to take it out on the tour. They used it for two numbers a night. Didn't you like um,
0: give it to him on the day that he played it for the first time? So, this obviously yeah. dealers and I imagine his tech had a look over it and you know gave, gave it a few finishing touches yeah. and stuff. But that was kind of that was one of the prototypes, so that was straight off of a, a, a boat from China to it Ashdown was. HQ, and then you took it down to Biffy Clara and he played it at an arena at a ba- yep. you know, a base that's you know. Entry level yeah, price point,
1: yeah. They're going to probably retail around about the 399 mark. Um, um, everyone,
0: um, but, but um,
1: uh, the, this is not an Ashdown advert. Um, we, uh, we uh, it, it's it, it's encouraging to see what they can do and the consistency in which they make a good product. Yeah. Uh, we, we've worked in China now for about 20 years uh, in manufacturing, and it's come a long way. Uh, we've worked with uh, a family business based out of there similar to our own that have grown with us accordingly and it's actually really quite humbling to see the processes and everything that they go through it's not dissimilar to what we've done and what we're doing today um it's just a different level and a different scale China is such a vast area um and the world that they cater to is such a, a vast expanse I mean I'd love to be able to make everything back in the UK again. Um, I really make more stuff
0: now in the UK than you probably have for a little while. Yeah,
1: um, we make about twenty percent of what we sell in the UK, generally speaking. Which is all the valve stuff, all the valve stuff, and some of the the newer ABM stuff with the the limited edition and the seven fifty that we're doing here, and then a lot of the pedals that we've done here in the past as well. All of the, the 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 18-volt ProFX series were built here in the UK. Yeah. Um, we've done some work with others as well, making stuff for others in the UK, which also kind of helps um, on that front. And it's nice to kind of get involved in little projects that we're not seen to be involved in. Um, I think that little white-label approach to to manufacturing and, and design is something that we'll always look to do with stuff we've got our names on and stuff we haven't from stuff from euphonics audio that we did back in the day that we designed a preamp for them with our electronics engineer at the time, um, a guy Clive Button, uh, who again is an industry uh, legend. Um Clive worked back in the day for the wonderful fine folk at Trace Elliott and prior to that he's done work with, with everyone from um Simmons drums to to all sorts of Clive's always been a, a wonderful electronic engineer, and then right. um, it's um, yeah. Sorry, tangents. Um, <laughs> uh, well,
0: yeah. I mean, wait, wait, wait. yeah well, <laughs> well, I tell you what, I, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you because that that's a thing. I don't think. I guess we've you know we've worked together for a few years now, and I'm not sure there's ever been more than a two week period where there hasn't been something new in research and development that's yeah. always the thing and it doesn't have to be like a big release for you you yeah you know, no. sometimes it's like you're going to do this little run of something or maybe you'll try this maybe this will get released on the side and so I, I guess I was what what's been what's been your favorite like weird little thing that you've made over the years like something that's not the bread and butter of I'm putting you on the spot there um but, yeah uh, um, but uh, I, I you know a little thing um, i mean th- uh, wh- one of the things that really stood out for me because of when it was released was you did a collaboration with a bass player i can't remember the fella's name it was a tiny little head a tiny little square head the pie, base,
1: pie Boyce. bass yeah Wojciech pilichowski yeah, Was um, that Ashdown
0: design, you've got to bear in mind was, when this was released, dear listener. What, when was when was it? it? It must have been like early two thousands, right? Yeah, it would have been um, uh, sort of.
1: Uh, it might have been as late as two thousand and ten, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, okay. On, on the pie base, that's particularly. still that um, is still
0: before people started really playing. You think two thousand and ten, Mark base maybe just existed but if they did they were probably making their larger solid state heads then you know yeah. just as a, um, as a reference point you know because after mark they started going class d we saw loads of brands start moving towards that that sort of thing yeah. but and the class a- d thing
1: i mean that, that that was it i mean the pie base kind of for us it started with the superfly which was way back when that was about 2003 we came up with superfly which was the first class d um, programmable um, MIDI controllable bass amp, um, which we kind of got a bit carried away with the extrusion on. <laughs> there was, then, there uh, was a
0: lot of MIDI controllability on that head at a time where most people didn't even own a, a MIDI
1: a MIDI controller system. or yeah. switching system. No, no, it was <laughs> incredible. I mean, that that had accessible sort of 99 presets, and then there was a full parametric EQ, um, variable compression. Uh, it was phenomenal what you could do with the program, and that was based on a relationship that we established with uh, a. PA amp company right. at the time um, out in China, actually a company called Sukaku, um, who do some great mixes and PA systems still today. The software that we implemented from that was made available to us to, to kind of full base. So we seeing that opportunity yeah. um, come to light and what could be done with that. So then that was that. And then we did the, the my base, which was kind of the evolution of that, which was our first sort of commercial Class D product, which did really well. Then we did the MyBase 2.0, and then we did the PyBase, which was the collaboration with Wojciech Lechowski, who'd been using Ashdown, um, massive fan of Mark King of level 42. Bearing in mind, I grew up, um, base for me, has always been a status base and a, and a trace alien. Um, <laughs> well, uh, uh, like, right. uh, from, 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 a, from a kid's perspective, um, from my youth's perspective, I suppose I've got a bit of a distorted youth than most in this <laughs> industry. Um, so yeah, uh, for me, a status bass, uh, a trace, um, or even a Lembic preamp. Again, yeah. that whole Mark King element of what he achieved, and then moving it's
0: make, on. making a bass sound like a piano—that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was making a bass sound like a piano, and they did it so well. And then, kind of growing up a little bit and getting into the Who and Johnette Whistle's tone and everything else that kind of it, it transpired from that moment in time. Um, John was also a, a piano man um, with his instruments. I mean, his gold-plated—what are the gold-plated strings? They're incredible. Um, but on Jane John's buzzard bass, it was just a phenomenal thing um, to, to witness. So it's, um, yeah, I think going back to your subject, actually, um, on on what's the craziest, most wonderful little invention we've done. Um, most proudest part is the switch to to valve for me. Um, right, because I guess because cause
0: it's yeah, it's it's actually relatively recent. Is the CTM yeah. the first all valve range? Because before well, had it was the, the,
1: we had the we the BTA, but the BTA um, was a it was the state. ABM preamp yeah, um, with right. the with the with the valve power section, and that was kind of the first dip of our toe into the valve market with the little bastard um, at the time, which was the original one. Um, but yeah, coming up with that—that that was a big departure for us. We'd never done yeah. valve amps. Um, well, it was the, corner, the cornerstone in- of Ashdown was that it was that it was high solid state, stuff. solid yep, state absolutely. hybrid because that's what Trace blendable was. valve preamp. Yeah. Um, exactly, that's kind of a- Ashdown sort of left off where where um, well started where Trace left off. Um, yeah. uh, very much so within product development and everything else at the time. But yeah, R and D that whole process. So for me, yeah, um, valve amplifiers that big deep hole into valve was was a big passion driven by me at the time because it wasn't something we'd really looked at and i was given the reins to it a little bit um and came up um with these products with our chief engineer dave green at the time who again dave um has worked with us since 2006 and dave's for those that don't know dave's um an electronics engineer. Well actually he's um he's not, he's a mechanic. Um <laughs> uh, owned a string of garages and then got fed up with that world and delved into electronics um in his sort of late twenties, early thirties and subsequently started working with some incredible sort of amplification brands around the world and uh, spent a bit of time up at Matamp and a few others. Um uh, and yeah Dave's worked with us now since two thousand six Is our electronics engineer and design engineer, R&D engineer, service engineer. Generally speaking, Dave spends seven days a week with us in here. (laughs) Uh, But what you don't know, what he doesn't know about electronics or anything um, isn't worth knowing. Um, And, yeah, yeah. Dave's a wonderful soul. So yeah, doing the valve amps for me, the little bastard will always hold a special place in my heart. The there little was a bastard must be The original
0: <clears throat> Ashdown little bastard must be one of the most successful products you've ever done. Yeah. I
1: actually don't know that dear listener as a fact. I'm, I'm,
0: well, I'm it, guessing. I don't have access it, it, to that. It's,
1: a, it's always done. It had always done well. Um, it never sold in dramatic numbers, but subsequent evolutions of it have. Right. Um, so with the, um, the Little Bastard spurred the way for the CTM-30 and then the yeah. CTM-30 Little Stubby, um, because fundamentally everything revolved around it being a Little Bastard. And the Little Bastard came about from a, a bit of a morbid fascination with um, James Dean, actually, um, which inspired that a lot of what we do as a company is inspired by motorsport cars and everything in between
0: cars are a big part of the ash i mean even you know the the color scheme the logo uh yeah. you know it's it's there's it's a real i mean and yeah. and of course the the amount of different cars that you guys always <laughs> buy and
1: sell <laughs> yeah cars have definitely been a bit passion i think that was my father's first choice would have been a a car salesman, stroke racing driver. Um, (laughs) However, um, he was a metal worker um, and got asked to design a a, a chassis and save a company some money, Um, and that was Trace Elliott all those years ago. (laughs) Um, And then subsequently we're here today. Um, So, yeah, The Little Bastard, it was um, inspired by James Dean, um, from his last movie, Giant, he was given the nickname Little Bastard by the director of the movie, which at the time he drove uh, he got given a, he actually drove and raced uh, Porsche 356s. However, it was around the time Porsche had just introduced the 550 Spider. It was a convertible um, bathtub of the car. And he was given one by Porsche, um, I believe, or he'd purchased one. Um, and he had, um, uh, little bastard scribed into the back of the car and it was silver with red details it was beautiful um and, and subsequently that that's the car that james dean lost his life in um uh, which inspired the aesthetic the look the styling the text that he'd done his number on the back of the car was either 130 it was 130 on the back of his car and that 30 that's on there is the same styling as was on the original Little Bastard. And it was all inspired by that the chrome and the red, um, everything that came from that kind of inspired that onwards. And then recently getting to work with Two Notes Audio Engineering on the wonderful new Little Bastard 2.N has been a, a great little project. Um,
0: yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's really nice to see the, the the Little Bastard come back as another amp. Of course, you also done the MF, which is based on the old Hayden, Hayden, yes. the sister company of Ashdown, the Hayden Mofo's, which yep. were great, sort of you know really successful little lunchbox amplifiers. Right when lunchbox amps were starting to become popular, but it's yeah, nice they- to it's nice to kind of see them back. And like I'd said, I was going to kind of talk to you about the, the like this the recent news that uh, that. Chris Shiflett toured the last Foo Fighters this current Foo Fighters tour with a Strymon and Iridium in, instead of an amp, and you see some some people moving away from amps. Dear listener, you'll be fully aware of how I feel about that, and obviously Dan is so <laughs> who yeah. owns an amp company. But it's interesting to see. I th- I kind of I like that the little bastard is sort of your answer to that because it's a fully valve. Amplifier, as is the MF, you know, fully valve, 30 watts, valve preamp, valve power stage. But two notes are kind of a they're a good, they're an excellent addition because it's a it's it's not just a load box, a cab sim, you know, loaded load yeah. box as well kind of gives it, you all the best of both
1: worlds. It's a toolkit now, it's not just a one-trick pony where those little lunchbox amps used to sit upon wonderful um furniture as such. Um and gigs I mean we had um people gigging a thirty watt little bastard mic top stage, yeah. running it through a 112 or a two twelve cabinet, um, playing arenas. Ellie Gording's bass player actually um used to tour with one and uh, creating it more of a, a toolkit rather than it just being a lunchbox um was was a wonderful option. And it is weird to see how the trends are going with people moving away from backline and having something on stage and speaking to bands that have made the switch saying, um, how how is touring without it? And um, a lot of them feel like they're cheating a little bit because of the the lack of fatigue and everything else that comes without without having the backline there. Because having stuff kick you in the back, whether it's sound waves or or a boot. Um, it takes its toll over a period of time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we we have to kind of diversify into that simulation world a little bit, but um, that's well out of our comfort zone in terms of being able to support something of that nature. Um, uh, the wonderful people at Two Notes Audio Engineering offer a, a great uh, back-end and support network that's available to us as a, as a brand, um, to support our products because they're supporting their own product. Um, uh, which gets us onto kind of the next level of where we want to take things and gear and movements. One thing that really stood out for me at the NAMM show this year, I got to walk the halls a little bit in the pro pro audio world. Um, and seeing the guys at Mixwave and what they've done with the Benson Amp plugin. Um, it's a phenomenal plugin. Um, it's
0: it's amazing. The, that that Benson Amplifier plugin is very, very hard to top. It is kind of a – if you get it, dear listener, you probably don't need anything else to record guitar. It is a very yeah, uh, good the, plugin. The Chimera package, I
1: believe it is. Um yeah. and it comes with all of their favourite pedals as well as the amps that work with them. Uh, yeah, just phenomenal. It's reactive, it was expressive. I felt like it was a, it, an amplifier. Um, it helped the monitors that they had on, on for the display. It um, was some beautiful, um, what were they? they um, anyway, beautiful monitors. Um, and it sounded great. The headphones, it even sounded great through the Bayer Dynamics that we were using on the display at the time. Right. Um, I can't remember the instrument I was playing it through, it was probably an ESP or something similar. But it worked. It sounded great um, and um, it gave us an opportunity as well to talk to them about the sort of future collaborations and what could be achievable for, for Ashdown in, in the virtual world. Yeah. yeah um, it, I, it, and it,
0: it would be great to have, I mean, you know, <laughs> I've probably said it before, dear Lister, but I'd love to have a, a proper Ashdown fully-fledged fully, fully fledged plug-in. You know, the the yeah. only things you ever see for bass players are different versions of SVTs. It's like the only plug-in out there. It really is. And if we're going to be doing something
1: similar to that, it needs to be right. Because yeah. bass players, we often get the short straw when it comes to virtual gear, digital gear. Um, we're always seen as the last thought to an extent. And even with pedals and various other bits, the market's become more fun recently. Um, but still, bass has always been an afterthought just because of the size of the market. Uh, I mean, there's 10 guitarists to every bass player, if not more. Um, sure. uh, but we always get left behind. And I, just seeing what's available for guitarists, I'm really excited as to what the future holds for, for us bass players. Um, yeah, there are modelling options out there, but I've never kind of... I mean, we, we did touring um, pre-production rehearsals with various different bands over the world that have plugged in a Kemper to start running their bass signal from and not being able to kind of move the air that they could normally or right. give the real sense of it moving air in the way it should. And yeah. um, um, For me, as a, an amplification manufacturer, um, you'll never be sort of a... a a big big transistor based amplifier pushing air through an 8x10 um, ferrite speakers um I'm really kind of pushing the amplifier it, it, there's, nothing like it, uh, there's nothing like it for bass there's nothing like for plugging in a guitar amp and for turning it up and making some noise for a 412 um, you forget as 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 beautiful as those things are I mean we plugged into a green back loaded 412 here recently uh, with only a, it was a 15 watt little MF that we've got coming out, yeah. um, uh, and a few other amps of choice at the time. And it was just so dynamic, responsive. I mean, you shoved any mic in front of it and it sounded beautiful. It had that sort of creamy classic tone that you could dial up and get a vibe out of. It wasn't just sort of the serving a purpose as backline seems to do these days. Sure. Um, um, Obviously, the the beauty of having a studio environment to be able to kind of delve into these things. Um, I understand not everyone has that opportunity, so yeah, modelling's fit a purpose and solved a, a a problem that no one knew they had. Um, but. Uh, there's always going to be a place for, for, for real amps. Well, that um, was actually going to
0: be my next question. Do you feel like there's a counterculture to that? Because I feel like, uh, like it's the Ashdown Custom Shop. What was that absolutely massive bin amp
1: that you... That, yeah, that you yeah. To be? there is always going to be that that one person that wants something to be loud and to stand out from a crowd. And that one person in this instance was uh, Martin Glover, a.k.a. aka Youth of uh, Killing Joke and... And, uh, a producer extraordinaire um, uh, and youth wanted something, they were doing the Killing Joke 30th anniversary tour um, a show, even it wasn't even a tour, it was a show at the Royal Albert Hall to commemorate the, the release of the um, first album 30 years ago, I believe um, or it was the concert, it was we can check on that um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it, uh, it, it was a great um, thing to do and we, we built basically an old uh, folded PA system for him, um, a 215 folded bin with a 212 sort of high-end um, cabinet on top.
0: Was that the same as the end whistle? The
1: the ASS cabinets, uh, the cabinet. ASS cabinets. Yeah, the, the AS cabinets. Um, yeah um, very similar to the, those. Um, not exact, because unfortunately um, back in 2007 um, – uh, our warehouse burnt down um a factory burnt down um losing all of the original drawings and the original cabinets from that um from that last Empressel tour we did have the option to buy some recently from an auction site that was selling john's old cabinets but um um, went for we, too we, much. Today. Went went for far <laughs> too much. Um, so we tried to replicate them again. And anyway, um yeah, use cabs. It's great being able to do custom shop bits for people and there is a little bit of a a, a counterculture to the digital world, especially amongst bass players.
0: Well yeah, you think um, you look at like um you look at what Guy Pratt commissioned as his signature amplifier head, the Interstellar six hundred, it's in a massive sort of fifties radio style chassis
1: yeah it uh, it is and it isn't just the older players that are going for it as well i mean we've recently been working with a couple of younger bands that have enjoyed having a valve amp and being able to turn it up up um even um getting to work with the arctic monkeys and various bits um over the years um and getting a ctm 300 on stages with them and comparable to them using their old svts and various other heads that they'd take out on the tour the ashdown never went wrong uh it was always kind of the staple they could drive the hell out of it and it and it worked night after night after night Uh, and that's one thing i remember getting told once by a backline tech never trust an amp you have to update um and i'm a firm believer of that to an extent um (laughs) <laughs> amplifiers should turn on night after night and yes there will be some variance in sounds because it will depend upon the the room the the electrics everything else that that create that sound um uh-huh. but that's some of the joy and the characteristics of playing live um it's real it's not pre-recorded um it's live so why should the the stuff that you're using be pre-recorded i i get the whole the, the, um, it's convenient to to carry uh it's 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 a convenient thing to turn on night after night um plug into uh, jack cables into the back of it straight into the pa system and route your monitor mix into it at the same time it's a wonderful 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 thing um uh, and i'm all for it um, it just suck some of the fun out of it a little bit just really it? does <laughs> i mean tinnitus is becoming less of a problem um <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, there you go that is uh, uh, hearing aids um for our generation won't be as well not necessarily our generation but the generation no, definitely not for you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah uh, will be a thing of the past so it, it does definitely have its upsides um but there's nothing better than turning something on and making some loud noise Um, As a musician, uh, uh, it's always wonderful to to kind of see your drummer's reaction, to see the guitarist's reaction um, when you make a a big, loud, lovely noise. Um, Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And anyway, on I I tell you what, on that note, that does in fact bring us to the end of this week's episode of Guitar Nerds, dear listener. Um, if you are a Patreon supporter, head over to patreon.com forward slash guitar nerds. Or even if you're not, sign up. You can for as little as a dollar a month. Each week we do an extra episode. This week, JD and I will be talking about a bunch of stuff, some new gear that we've been buying and being talked into but head over there um if you want to get in contact with guitar Nerds for any reason any other social medias obviously or, or you can email us at info at guitar uh dan thank you so much for for joining us this week it's been lovely to have you on and have you you know hear all this stuff about the the rather weird and full-on uh life that you've had in uh, the application world.
1: Thank you, Joe. Um, It's been a pleasure being on um, this podcast with you, and and catching up and talking a little bit about gear.
0: Yeah, there you go. Well, thanks very much. Okay, dear listeners, uh, I'll see you over on the Patreon, and we'll be back next week for more of this guitar nerdery. Farewell. you dear patreon supporters for listening to another episode of the guitar nerds podcast now of course as usual it is time for me to thank our top tier patron supporters for being so amazing. Thank you to Marcus Deluxe, Suresh, Dorsonic Pickups, Chris Franklin, Anton Fryant, Russ Meehan, Barry Gresbick, Steve Davis, Daniel Walker, Jorin Brown, John Conaway, The Studio Rats, Russell Healing, Yogi the Guitarist, Ty Allen, Kyle Harris, Sean Hughes, Andy Hoffler, Eric Hemmer, Jeffrey Wax, Brian Einsler, Mark Hizau-Kadawaki, Stuart Robert Eric File, Peter Pesche, Andy Manley, Simon Milbourne, Joe Puttick, Blake Wyland, Phil Rodomsky, Dave Lee, Ross Edwards, Jason Wharton, James Dorr, Jake Gray, Derek Rich, Scott Kennedy, Steve Merkel, Abe Matthews, Christopher Losef, Stephen Burke, Robin Smith. Kytopia The Band, JD Short, Andy McKenzie, Brad Page, Paul Corrigan, Rob Nordvik, Scott O'Brien and of course Moog Gravit.